from Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. Human Nature is taking a holiday break until January 20th, so in the meantime, we're bringing you an episode of a new podcast from our friends at NPR member stations WWNO and WRKF in Louisiana. It's that time of year when food and delicacies are on our mind and taste buds. So this time we're heading to the Gulf Coast to find out if you've had your last good oyster. That's the question at the heart of this episode from Life Raft. The podcast explores people's questions about living with climate change. And this episode takes us on a journey from a famous oyster bar in New Orleans to a lab that's trying to prepare oysters for a more turbulent future. So, our question this week comes from a survey we did asking people in Louisiana what questions they had about climate change. Someone submitted this tasty question, and Travis, please, you read it. Have I had my last good oyster? From WWNO, WRKF, and PRX, this is Life Raft, your survival guide for a changing planet. I'm Lauren Malera. I'm a comedian. I was born and raised in New Orleans. And I'm Travis Lux. I'm an environment reporter for New Orleans Public Radio. And today on the show, everyone's favorite subject, food. Have I had my last good oyster? Lauren, I know for a fact that you love oysters, right? I'm from New Orleans. I grew up eating them. We eat them fried on French bread. We eat them raw on the half shell. I spent one Christmas Eve as a child in a local oyster bar. That sounds fun. It was really a sweet time. Do you like oysters, Travis? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I wish I would have eaten more of them to this point in my life. I grew up in Texas where I didn't really, we just didn't really eat them over there. But Mm -hmm. as soon as I moved here fell in love, and I'm just trying to make up for lost time, frankly. We weren't really sure what this question meant. This is a podcast about climate change and how climate change can relate to oysters. Seems like just such a huge topic. Right. I tried to follow up with this person to figure out for sure, but I never heard back. I emailed, I called, nothing. Uh, So it's not exactly clear what they meant, but based on my own reporting over the last couple of years as an environmental reporter... I think there's probably two possible things that they're talking about here. Um, and we just have to figure out which one we're going to kind of focus on. Okay, lay out the two possibilities. Okay. Um, number one, I'll call deadly oysters. Oof. And the other one, number two, I'll call dead oysters. Which one do you want to do first? I don't want to do either one, Travis. I know. <laughs> okay, both take a little bit of sciencey background, so just bear with me. We'll get there. Um, I honestly almost brought us daiquiris. There's a really good Satsuma one out right now. Oh, yeah. That Mm. would have been perfect for this moment. Okay, here's the deadly oyster scenario. Let's cue up some music. Every once in a while, someone dies from eating a raw oyster. And the culprit is usually this bacteria called Vibrio vulnificus, which we should say right off the bat is a super rare scenario, but it does happen. It's also one of the reasons why the oyster industry is so highly regulated and one of the reasons why restaurants have those disclaimers you've probably seen on the menu that says something like eating raw oysters or shellfish can cause 
illnesses. Yeah, I. you told me it's like a bacteria thing and I've heard some stories growing up like you shouldn't eat raw oysters if you're pregnant or after a big storm. Right. So Vibrio vulnificus is a bacteria and it is naturally found in coastal waters, especially warm coastal waters. And you can get infected a bunch of ways, not just eating oysters. You can also get it from just swimming around with an, like an open wound. But with climate change, <laughs> our oceans are heating up and there is a concern that Vibrio is going to become more prevalent in these warm waters and therefore that these infections are gonna go up. I hate this. I hate thinking about bacteria in the water and also people in the water where the oysters I eat come from. I know. I regret hosting this podcast. You don't mean that. I don't mean it. (laughs) The good thing here is that Vibrio isn't a threat to most people. Certain people are more susceptible to these infections, like people with weak immune systems. Most people can go about eating raw oysters and it's honestly fine. But of course, if you're ever worried about it, just cook your oysters and all good. Cook them on a grill with some butter and cheese. Mm. So to recap, one climate change threat to oysters is warmer water. And this isn't actually a threat to the oysters as it is a threat to the people who eat raw oysters. Right. There's a second one and I'm guessing it's worse. Well, we'll, we'll see. Scenario number two is the dead oyster scenario. And this has to do with how salty the water is that they come from and also with extra rainfall caused by climate change. Can we play more upbeat music this time? Yeah. Great. So oysters thrive in brackish water. They need a mixture of salty and fresh water to stay happy and healthy. And if it gets too salty for too long, that's bad news. If it gets too fresh for too long, they die. You know, one of the reasons that Louisiana produces so many oysters in this country is because we have that kind of a coast around here. The ocean provides the salty water, and then the fresh water comes from the Mississippi River. Which has been flooding a lot. Yep. The Mississippi River floods every year, usually in the late spring, early summer, and that is due to heavy rains and snow melts in places like the Midwest. That water, all that water, drains into the Mississippi River, flows down to the Gulf of Mexico, where we are, and dumps into the Gulf. Usually that's not a big deal. It happens every year. Um, But lately, the problem is that these floods have been getting bigger and bigger, and they're lasting longer and longer. And part of the reason is because of more rain due to climate change. For an example, 2019, just a couple years ago, That flood season was really, really bad. It lasted for months, way longer than normal, and it totally devastated the oyster population on the coast. We're talking about like entire swaths of coastal areas where like 90 to 100 percent of oysters just died because the water was too fresh for too long. Yeah, they were so expensive around that time if you could get them. Right. And so the climate change threat, this scenario is about flooding. Some parts of the country are getting more rainfall. And then that means more flooding on the Mississippi River and more fresh water on the coast. And that means more dead oysters. Exactly. So those are the two scenarios, deadly oysters, dead oysters. I think we're going to focus on dead oysters this episode, right? Why? Yes, because, listen, I'm from New Orleans. I grew up with oysters. How could there be a world without oysters? I hope that never happens. And also, this is just a perfect excuse for us to go eat oysters. Yep. <laughs> okay, here we go. Fast Gamanelli is coming All right, right on right. in. Ooh. Okay. A lot of memorabilia up on these walls. So that's what we did. We went to an oyster bar just to see 
if supplies were still plentiful, how they were doing, and importantly, we wanted to talk to some people in the business, in the oyster business at restaurants, um, to see what they thought about climate change and this climate change threat. You know, if oysters are indeed threatened by climate change-induced flooding, then maybe it's on their minds. So the place we chose was Pascal's Manali, which is a famous seafood restaurant in New Orleans that's been serving up the classic New Orleans staples since about 1913. I have never been there before. It's a little bit fancier than I am, and it's it's directly off the Mardi Gras parade route, so I have seen it before. When you walk in there, though, there's all these black and white photos covering the walls. It looks like a historical site. Right. The other thing you notice right when you walk in is the oyster bar, which is marble, and there's a man who works there all day long, Thomas Stort. He's also known as Uptown T. And if you ask his name, you get this whole song and dance. What's your name? Oh, you could ask me my name, but never call me Charles and never call me James. Because when I say Pudding Tang, you ask me again, I'm going to tell you the same. I am, I am, I am, I am Uptown T, Uptown T, the one and only one beneath the sun. Often imitated, but never can be duplicated. When I say 3D, baby, you better get back 50 feet because you're going to see me, Uptown T. And you can call me Thomas. And you know what I say? Cha, 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 baby. <laughs> Uptown T is the first person to greet you when you walk in the door and the last one to say goodbye when you leave, usually. And he's kind of responsible for creating the vibe that you just really love being around and is probably one of the reasons why Pascal's is such a beloved restaurant. Bye, girl. Bye, guys. Bye, Bye. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye baby. <laughs> I like to make people laugh. Yeah, you and do. And I don't do it to get them to laugh. They just laugh because <laughs> I give that half and I put, that, I put it out there. You know what I'm saying, baby? Mm-hmm. We walked to a back room where we barged in on the Pearson family, who had just finished up a really big meal. They live in Texas, and they came to New Orleans to celebrate Tyler and Brenda's 40th anniversary. Here's Brenda. All right, so I grew up here, and I grew up coming to Pascal Manali's and eating barbecue shrimp and standing next to the oyster bar. So when I was thinking about a 40th wedding anniversary celebration, on my bucket list was these adult children of mine and to bring them to this special place. So we've been here today and we've eaten the oysters. They're fabulous, wonderful, delicious. And tea was amazing. Tea was amazing at the bar. Uptown tea. Uptown tea was amazing at the bar. I have a question. So you said you grew up here at the oyster bar. How old were you when you were coming and hanging out at the oyster bar here? Okay, so I I was here, I lived here from 9 to 21, mm-hmm. 23, so those years, all of those years, I grew up here. Very New Orleans, Oyster Bar, old. nine years old. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I did! <laughs> Brenda's Texan husband used to be in the Navy and ate oysters wherever he moved. He seemed to be the biggest oyster fan in this group. And what I like about them is, I just, I, I like the texture. And I don't just swallow them, I chew them up. <laughs> because I want, I want all the flavor to hit before I ever swallow You like go wrong. the go big wrong, ones or wrong. the small ones? Well, you know, down here with the Gulf oysters, I like them a little bit bigger. You get up in the Northeast, I like the smaller ones. They're a little tastier, the smaller ones are than the, than the larger ones. But Gulf, yeah, these babies are fat and good. <laughs> and you can't beat them. We finished with the family, wished them a happy anniversary, and sat down at a table with Pascal Manali's manager, Carmen Provenzano. I grew up um, 
I guess a lot of people would say like down the bayou, down in Lower St. Bernard Parish. So I've been on oyster boats and shucking oysters since I was about 10 years old. Uh, oysters are in my blood, period. It's part of our lifestyle down here, uh, the seafood um, and then the, the oysters for sure. Yeah, Carmen's got to be the biggest oyster champion that I've ever met. I feel like if I was an oyster and someone was bullying me, Carmen is the dude that I want in my corner fighting for me. Mm-hmm. And he made a clear case for not just how tasty oysters are, but how important they are to the culture and to this region and to our economy. There are so many people involved in, in the oyster industry uh, in, in South Louisiana. Everybody knows somebody that works in this business. Uh, there are days when you can go out to the New Orleans lakefront uh, on a Friday afternoon when the weather's right, and you'll see guys with an, a, a, an ice chest and a sack of oysters and a, a flathead screwdriver because they don't happen to have an oyster knife. But they just sit out there and chuck them with a, with a screwdriver and go. It's, all, it's just all part of us. It's, uh, you know, Mardi Gras is part of us. Oysters are part of us. There's so many different things that make New Orleans what it is. Uh, if oysters aren't at the top of the list, they're in the top three. How do you eat your oysters? I will eat them any way you put them in front of me. (laughs) We were talking earlier about how 2019 was a year that saw massive oyster die-offs due to the flooding in the Mississippi River. So we asked Carmen, does he worry about the trend of bigger and bigger floods or about oysters becoming harder to get? Um, They're not going anywhere. Oysters have survived and survived and survived um, long before humans. We've, we've, we're a blip, you know, oysters have been here for a long time. They've, they've seen everything. Uh, I got to say, this answer surprised me a little bit because I know for a fact that the 2019 flood season caused alarm among a lot of oyster harvesters, the people closest to the action on the ground. And when I was reporting on this back then, one oyster harvester even told me that the damage caused by flooding that year was right up there with Hurricane Katrina and the BP oil spill. That's a big deal. So my assumption was that that would make it much more difficult to get oysters in restaurants. And so I also assumed that Carmen would have noticed and would have therefore been a little bit more worried about this pattern of bigger and bigger floods. But he really wasn't. It's cyclical. You know, sometimes oysters will be just up and down in different areas. And it is. It's, you know, we deal with hurricanes. We deal with oil spills. We deal with humans. We deal with everything. And the oysters just continue to keep staying around. They're not going anywhere. I've said it a few times. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've never had any issues uh, like sourcing them when when certain areas. You just areas gotta make a few phone calls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all. But no, you're not. You you can you can find them. Mm-hmm. If you want them, you can find them. And and look, I'm not trying to discredit anything regarding climate change mm-hmm. no. or anybody's feelings about climate change. Mm-hmm. But as I said earlier, humans are a blip on this planet. Since, since the dawn of time, we're a blip. And this planet has gone through climate change. We may be accelerating it. We may be impacting it. I'm sure we are. But Earth keeps bouncing back. And part of that are oysters and, and things like that. It's going to keep bouncing back. You may get a little bit of a lull here and there and... You know, I'm, I'm sure with, with anything with, with, the, with the food industry, uh, 
we can always find a way to blame ourselves and, you know, too many aerosol cans and, you know, too many gasoline engines and, and try to convince each other that we're screwing everything up. But Earth is going to survive. Oysters are going to be great. I really, I don't have any, any, any other thought than that. We're, they're not going anywhere. All right. I'm curious, Lauren, what did you make of Carmen's answers? Well, I mean, it seems like he does have an immediate solution, but this might be a long-term problem. So while we were there, we learned that Louisiana and Texas supply the country with over half of the oysters that people eat in restaurants. And if Louisiana and Texas have a shortage, then where are you going to go to get oysters? Right. I hear what he's saying about it not being that difficult to get oysters and therefore not being that concerned. It sounds like that's been his experience. And maybe it's the experience of a lot of restaurateurs right now um, that, you know, just so far there haven't been that big of problems uh, because they've been able to pivot and get oysters. You know, if it's not, if you can't get them from one place, you can get them from, you know, maybe a state next door. But at the same time, I also just left the restaurant that day wanting to talk to a scientist about this. Like, what do they think about the future of oysters in this era of rapid climate change? You love science. I, I do. So that's what we did. We took a trip down the coast of Louisiana. It was beautiful. And we went to an oyster lab where we talked to an oyster scientist about whether anything can be done to help oysters adapt to a hotter climate. Like, well, first, I guess we should say where we are. Oh, yeah. Can you can you just say where we are? Like. Like the house yes, or sure. the lab? All, All of, of it. it. Okay. Um, well, we're sitting in a camp owned by LSU on Grand Isle, which houses the Louisiana Sea Grant Oyster Research Laboratory. So we drove a couple hours from New Orleans to this place on the Louisiana coast called Grand Isle, and we wanted to meet up with that guy you just heard, Dr. Brian Callum. He is an oyster researcher with Louisiana State University and Louisiana Sea Grant. Most of the buildings in Grand Isle, like a lot of the buildings in Louisiana, are up on stilts. I'm talking homes and businesses and public schools. They're all lifted up because these are places that anticipate big storms. The Oyster Research Lab is also up on stilts. It's a beautiful view. They're right on the water. And there's an apartment attached to where Brian lives a few days out of the week while he's doing his research. We spoke to him in his living room. Do you eat oysters? Yeah, as often as I can. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite way to eat them? Raw. Me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Travis has been trying to scare me with these killer oysters. But... Killer oyster? What are killer oh, they're, oysters? Oh, they're Vibrio, oh, Vibrio yeah, oysters, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, you really don't have to worry about that. Ah, from uh, a scientist. <laughs> yes. If you're, disclaimer, if you're getting them from a reputable source. Heard that. Um, <laughs> Do you remember your first raw oyster? No, <laughs> but I still have uh, the first Christmas ornament that I made out of an oyster yeah. shell when I was four. Yeah. <laughs> Brian grew up in a fishing town in Virginia and has been around oysters his whole life. His neighbor was an oyster fisher, he told us, and then now, of course, he studies them. And so to start, he walked us through the basics of the oyster life cycle, which is really helpful for understanding the threats that they face. This isn't the basics. We went so <laughs> in-depth with the life cycle of an oyster. I did not know that there was that much to learn about oysters, but it is helpful to help us understand how climate change is threatening them. Yeah, so the oysters are really cool and have an interesting life strategy. 
Oysters don't invest a whole lot into reproduction or care for their offspring. Um, an adult oyster can't move. You know, it's glued itself to wherever it is when it was young. And they generally find each other and make clusters around each other and that's how we get reefs. In the springtime when there's lots of food and the temperature is nice and warm, they start getting ready to spawn. So they have lots of food so they can start producing all the sperm and the eggs that they need for reproduction. And then for whatever reason, we're not quite sure exactly the right combination of, of cues, one of the oysters will start releasing those sperm or their eggs out into the water. And they're called broadcast spawners. So they literally just broadcast everything out into the water. They're just they just let it go, yeah, into a big cloud in the water around them. Can you see the cloud? You can, oh. yeah. Wait, um, what does it look like? Uh, if it's sperm, it just looks like watered-down skim milk okay. in the water. Uh, the eggs are actually large enough you can sort of see them. Um, maybe like a really fine salt grain kind of size. Uh, but they're also that milky color. Generally, once one oyster starts broadcasting all this stuff out into the water, everybody around them starts doing it too. Um, and then they hope that an egg gets fertilized by some of that sperm in the water column, and then that develops into a swimming larval stage. And the larval stage for the oyster lasts anywhere from a week and a half to a month out in the wild of this tiny little clam-shaped swimming larva hoping not to get eaten <laughs> and not to get washed up onto the shore or washed out into the gulf or mm. too far inland where it's too fresh. And they just swim around and filter out algae and they're happy. And then at the end of that larval cycle, they're ready to set themselves, as we say, or glue themselves onto a hard surface. They'll swim down and they'll feel around with a, a foot organ that they develop. Um, which is a, a chemical receptive sort of tongue that they kind of taste the surfaces. And they're looking for something that they think is hard enough, clean enough, and they'll glue themselves to it at that point. And once they do that, they never move again unless something comes along and moves them, whether it's waves or fish or people. And then they just grow and filter algae and provide habitat for lots of other species until they're big enough and then they'll start that whole broadcast spawning procedure all over again. Meeting with this scientist, I realize how much I am like an oyster. I've just latched on to New Orleans and I'm not going to leave. But that latching is what the actual problem is for oysters because they need a certain mix of salty and fresh water. And once they're settled in a place, they can't move and they can't escape it if the water's not right. And there's been a lot of flooding in the Mississippi River. The magnitude and the duration of these freshwater events that we're seeing in recent years, we haven't really seen before. We hope that they're anomalous, but we have to prepare for the chance that we may see these types of conditions more frequently. I think Brian's being cautious here not to attribute too much of this freshwater flooding threat to climate change. And I think that's actually probably appropriate. The flooding is not only because of climate change. It is a factor. But regardless, he does think that it's still important to help these oysters adapt to what could become the new normal. How can, it, how can you prepare oysters for a future like that? Yeah. So part of the work that we're doing to prepare for that future 
is by trying to prepare the oysters themselves. So what we have is a, a traditional breeding program here for oysters, picking the animals that have the traits that we want and using those as parents for the next generation. So for salinity tolerance, we expose oysters to low salinity and it's easy because the ones that don't die we know can handle that, those conditions and then they're likely to be good parents to give that trait to their offspring. All right, so we wanted to get a feel for how they do all this stuff, so Brian took us on a little tour of the lab. Thank you. Thank you. Is it weird that I think it smells good in here? (laughs) (laughs) Smells like the freshest oysters. (laughs) So this room is uh, what we call our dry lab. Uh, This is where we have our sensitive, you know, sciencey equipment. So this is where we start the whole process. So the process starts not with the oysters, but with the food. So Brian explained that oysters are filter feeders and what they eat is microalgae. And so just to make sure that their oysters are getting the top of the line algae, they make their own right there in the lab. And then it starts in this little closet over here, which we can take a peek in. Hmm. So you can peek in, just don't have to touch anything. Whoa, there's some mood lighting. The room where they grow the algae is so cool. There's these strips of different colored LED lights. It's supposed to help with the photosynthesis, and there's all these, like, gurgling beakers full of water. It was a very kind of club vibe in there, (laughs) but I might also just have not been out since February. That's true. (laughs) After that, he showed us the rest of the steps uh, for growing these oysters. We saw little baby oysters. We saw teenage oysters. And then we saw the grown-up oysters that, that they do these experiments with. And so the big question is, how are these experiments going? Are they having any luck creating a new, adaptable oyster of the future? Um, it's going okay. Um, we're still in, in the early days of it. Um, we're working with some other researchers who are looking at the physiology. We're working with some uh, really hardcore geneticists looking to try to link up specific you know, chunks of DNA code to these traits. And so we, we've gone through a couple generations of it, and it looks promising, um, but we haven't unrolled any of it out to the public yet. He thinks it'll be at least another three years till this new breed will be ready for the wild really kind of sounds like what they're doing there is making a climate change resistant oyster, which is super exciting. Brian, can I just get some clarity? That's what you're doing, right? No. no. <laughs> I think that's too ambitious. Okay. <laughs> um, but what, we, what we're able to do with the breeding program is we have this apparatus set up so that we're able to better, hopefully, better adapt oysters to whatever conditions come across. So are you worried then about the future of oysters at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, always. <laughs> Just because if you look at oysters across the globe, stocks are declining everywhere. You know, stocks are declining here. Louisiana in particular is especially um, well positioned with the wild oysters that we have. There's a lot of oysters in Louisiana still. If you go to any other state, there's not. If you go to any other country, you know, it, they don't have wild oyster populations anywhere in the world like they do in Louisiana. So Louisiana is really blessed with that, but, you know, 
oysters are dying everywhere else, it's, and they're declining here. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to be worried about them here as well. Mm. Do you have a, a, in, in your brain, like a sort of a timeline? Well, like, well, by this year, oh. like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the last oyster, you know what I mean? Yeah, no. Okay. Um, I don't think oysters are ever going to go away. Okay. Uh, they're going to cling on. They have for a long time. Uh, it's just whether or not we're going to have enough oysters to provide the, the ecosystem services that they have in the past and provide enough oysters for us to consume as mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's a lot of oysters that get eaten in Louisiana. There's a lot of oysters from Louisiana that get sent around the world to get eaten. Um, and it's scary to think that there's not going to be that many oysters coming from here in the future, but it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm. Man, what are you thinking? I really hate to hear that. I mean, I feel like I'm responsible for eating a lot of oysters. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like Brian's actually kind of optimistic about the future of the oyster. And it's interesting to me that his view of the future of oysters actually kind of echoed what we heard from Carmen um, at the beginning at the restaurant, which mm-hmm. I was like a little bit skeptical of. Um, still, though, it sounds like he thinks the oyster industry is what's going to have a tougher time adjusting um, more so than the actual oyster species. Yeah, and that would have a huge impact on the economy down here. That's everybody from fishermen to distributors to oyster shuckers like Uptown Tea. Right. And of course, it all depends, though, on how quickly some of these environmental changes occur. But it sounds like they're onto something trying to help the humble oyster grow a little bit stronger. I guess we should ask the question that kicks off the episode, huh? Yeah. I mean, do you think anybody will ever have their last good oyster? No. Good. Yeah, short right. answers. <laughs> and so it hasn't happened yet. We haven't had our last good oyster. No. No. Um, the last good oyster you eat is the last oyster before you die. I mean, mm. That's it. I love that. Yeah. And what's your professional opinion on these Sharknado movies? (laughs) (laughs) There's not enough oysters in them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what do you think, Travis? You had your last good oyster? I thought going into the episode that I would leave the episode thinking that, yes, maybe so. But now I'm thinking, I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic than I was. I think it's going to be tough for oysters. It's going to be even tougher for the oyster industry. Mm. But... um, I don't think I've had my last good oyster. Yeah. How about you? I've, I, you took me on a two hour ride where we pulled an oyster out of the gulf and dissected it. I'm never eating oysters no. again. I've had <laughs> my last good oyster. Wow. Well, at least raw. Okay. Put some butter and cheese on it. We'll see. TBD. All right. We did it. We did it again. Let's roll the credits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren Malera and Travis Lux, they host the new podcast, Life Raft. Each episode tackles a question about living with climate change. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a question for them, head to their website to submit it, liferaftpod.org. I'm Erin Jones. On behalf of the whole Human Nature team, wishing you a happy and tasty holiday season. We have one of our old favorite wintry Human Nature stories coming your way on January 6th, and we'll be back on January 20th with a fresh new episode. It's Human Nature.